0: So this morning, we will continue our journey through chapter 5 in the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul opens verse 1 with, Be imitators of God, and then he proceeds to tell us to walk in love. We must keep in mind that as we move forward, really until we come to about verse 22, which moves on to the institution of marriage, that our parameters are our guidelines by which we understand these Texts are kind of shaped around the immediate context of being those who imitate God. Paul, as we know, has sort of been going back and forth through the last chapter or so, giving us kind of a positive example of what it means to walk the Christian walk, and then giving us a negative example and warning us of the dangers of godlessness. In chapter 4, he ends the chapter with this very positive admonition of how we are to be kind to one another, how we're to be tender-hearted and full of forgiveness. And then in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5, he comes again to the warning. He says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. These verses are where we've been the last two Sundays, verses 3 and 4. We spoke last week of how we as humans tend to shy away from anything negative. We, we don't like the negative, at least in many areas. The propensity is to think that we don't need all the negative stuff in their life. Just give us the positive, just give us the good. But my argument is that this is really an intellectual mistake. It's a misguided perception. We don't see the warnings for what they really are, and that's why we tend to shy away from them. But in reality, the warnings are God's grace and God's guidance and God's guarding of His people. Last week, we used the example of learning to drive. If you'll recall, we talked about how everyone's excited to learn to drive at first, and they're taught things like proper acceleration and braking and turn signals and etc., Still, because a vehicle presents dangers, that's not all we're taught when we learn to drive. We're also warned of the dangers on the road. We're taught defensive driving and so forth, and we're all okay with that. And the reason we're okay with that is because we value our lives, right? And so our perspective is that the negative warnings about driving are very good or very helpful and necessary to preserve our lives. Well, I would suggest to you that this is the very same perspective we need when we come to the warnings of Scripture. Our very lives are at stake. So, yes, it is essential that we learn about loving one another and forgiving one another and the joy of life in Christ. But then we also desperately need to be warned of the devil's schemes and deadly vices that would seek to drown our souls in misery, that would seek to drive us further from Christ and, if even possible, be led astray completely. And so we need them both, and we should want them both, and if we have the proper perspective, we will come to desire them both. When a parent forbids a child to stick a fork in the electrical socket or a finger or whatever object he has in his hand at the time, surely the parent is likely to use a very negative tone and to give a severe warning. We understand that, and then instantly we understand that that all comes from a place of deep concern and love and care. And I think it's in this same way that the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warns the believers in Ephesus, and by extension, us as believers today. He's warning out of a deep care and love and concern for his flock, for the flock of God, the people of God. I think, sadly, the despising of the warnings of Scripture is one of the many reasons we have so many false churches and false converts today. A friend of mine was sharing a short exchange to me between himself and a megachurch pastor, one who currently has the largest so-called church in the country. He got an opportunity to speak to this man, and so he asked the pastor why they never speak about sin at his church. This is a true story. And the reply was something like, well, we just don't do that here. There's a reason he has the largest so-called church in America. There's a reason he attracts so many people. It's because he never speaks of sin. He never warns people of the dangers. He just lets the children stick their finger in the outlet, as it were. But they're attracted because the world loves their sin, and so do many professing believers. But that's not true For the genuine Christian. The genuine Christian loves holiness and therefore despises his sin. Now, this is an ever growing thing. As we grow in grace and grow in our faith, we find that our love for holiness increases and our hatred for sin increases. But you can always tell the sort of Christian someone is by how they respond to the warnings of Scripture. First, the true Christian responds by making sure they understand the warning. And then once they understand the warning, they examine their own life to see if there's anything unsavory that would be found in their life. And if so, the true Christian then proceeds to confess that sin before the Lord so that they might be more like Him. Contrarily, the worldly Christian which, by the way, is no Christian at all, despises the warning of Scripture in his heart. He excuses the sin or convinces himself that the warning doesn't really mean what it says. Maybe he squabbles over semantics or he appeals to modern so-called science. Perhaps he dismisses the Scriptures entirely based on experience or the stories of others. Maybe just by mere pragmatism. The worldly Christian will find every means to dismiss the warnings of Scripture. They're too negative, he'll say. Well, I know a man who did just fine in life, and he was this thing or that, he'll say. People simply won't come to church if you preach that part of Romans, he might say. Those people can't help it. That's just how they are, he might say. These are just some of the things that the so-called worldly Christian says to convince himself that he doesn't need to be concerned with sin or the dangers or the warnings given in Scripture. He believes in his heart that these warnings are not really to be taken seriously. I saw a short sermon clip uh, this week. I guess I thought I needed a raise in my blood pressure. From an up-and-coming popular preacher, where he was making the case for the acceptance of a particular sin that the Bible makes abundantly clear is against the Word of God. And then he goes on to admit that he started believing what the Bible teaches, that it was sin, and then he admits that the cracks in his doctrine, as he puts it, started when he met people who were living in this sinful lifestyle and claimed to love God deeply. I ended up having a personal exchange with this man, and now, not only has he completely abandoned the truth of Scripture concerning that sin, but now he even claims that the Bible led him to believe that this sin was really okay. You see, once you abandon the authority of Scripture, there's nowhere to go but down. And by down, I mean the pit of hell. This man excused away the warnings of Scripture, all because he met someone that lived this sinful lifestyle and claimed simultaneously to love God, He abandoned the Scriptures, really, because he didn't want anyone to be offended. Folks, we've got to let the Bible drive our doctrine. The Bible is not just a book. It's God's book. It's not just words on the page. They're God's words written on a page for us. So we've got to let the Bible drive what we believe, Not our experiences, not people who make claims contrary to Scripture, not our emotions, but Scripture alone. And we have to admit, really, that even true believers have the propensity to excuse sin away. You have the propensity to excuse your sin, and so do I. We know this, right? Maybe the most common form is the so-called little white lie. Do you know why there's a such thing as a white lie? Because we want to believe that lying is okay in some circumstances. Except, the problem is that we're told Satan is the father of lies. So we all have to deal with that propensity in our own lives. Paul certainly understood this, that that's our challenge as people. Paul Even himself struggled with doing the things that he knew he shouldn't do and not doing the very things that he knew he should do. And as believers, we're going to fight against sin until Christ returns. And what a day that will be when he does return. No more sin, no more suffering, and eternal joy worshiping a holy God. But until then, we have a battle raging against sin. Like I said, Paul understood this. Why else would he warn believers so often not to engage in a lifestyle of sin? Remember, Paul is writing to whom? The Christians in Ephesus. He's not writing to the ungodly. He's writing to those who profess faith in Christ. When he says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, he's speaking to Christians. So when we see the negative, when we see the warnings, we have to approach them not as though they're hard or depressing, but rather knowing that they are given to us to safeguard us from evil, to keep us from evil. The same evil that would seek to destroy us if it could. They're given to us so that we might be more like Christ by being on guard. This is exactly the way we need to approach our verse for this morning. This morning's passage is a solemn warning to Christians. After Paul's told us us to avoid sinful conduct in verse 3 and sinful speech in verse 4, we come to this warning in verse 5, which says this, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. The beauty of preaching through books of the Bible is is that you have to take the text as God gives it to you. You can't hide from it, you can't run from it, you can't ignore it. And if I skipped over a passage, I would hope you would come to me after and say, what are you doing? Why'd you skip that? We can't ignore it. And so this morning, we come to a rather serious subject. And the warning this morning really has to do with eternity. The final state of every man and woman is brought into question in this fifth verse. Now again, I want to remind you that Paul is speaking to Christians. And so when we hear the text this morning, it's not that we should be thinking about those who are outside of the body of Christ. We should be asking about ourselves. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and so clearly Paul believed that this was essential, that he warned the church in Ephesus of the peril that awaits the one who lives a life characterized by these vices he's been naming. Certainly, I think we would all agree that a warning like this is needed in much of the church today. People, and by people I really mean many Christians, simply just don't want to hear of sin and death and hell. And I understand that it's not the most pleasant of subjects, but it's the most necessary. I think what's noteworthy about the way Paul words this verse is that this knowledge is expected of the Christian Paul isn't presenting this as something previously unknown. He's not presenting it as new information. He doesn't speak as though this is something they're hearing for the first time. He says, for this you know with certainty. The expectation is that they already know this as Christians. I wonder today how many Christians know that what the Apostle Paul has just said is true with certainty. But in other words, the, the knowledge that the one who lives in sin is doomed to an eternity outside of the kingdom of God is fundamental. It's fundamental. It's elementary. In other words, it's very basic to the Christian understanding. The expectation is that this is such a basic thing that the believers in Ephesus should already know it. It's a statement that should cause no confusion. It isn't debatable or misunderstood by the Christian. It's known with certainty. So Paul's merely stating what Christians should already know and understand. And here I think it's worth asking, does the modern church really know that this is true? Do we know that... With certainty, the one who lives a life of sin will not enter the kingdom of God. Do you know that for sure? See, the apostle says we ought to. And if we don't, then how can, we, how can it be that when the apostle makes it clear that this is such a basic teaching, we haven't already come to that understanding? I think we have to admit that a large number today don't know Paul's teaching here. They don't know this to be true. If you were here this morning and you saw the video clip, you saw that number that 77% of professing believers think that faith matters, but it doesn't matter which faith you pursue. That group of people certainly doesn't know with certainty that what Paul is saying here is true. Let me say that again. 77% of professing American Christians believe that it's just as valid to worship Buddha or Allah or to be a pagan or to be into witchcraft as is to be a Christian and in the end, They'll all go to the same place. Seventy-seven percent of professing believers believe something like that. Certainly, they don't know that what Paul is saying is true. One reason for that is that many who profess to be Christ do not truly know Christ themselves. At least that's one of many reasons. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17 through 24, Paul said this. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here comes verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In reality, those who have truly learned Christ do know with certainty that no one who lives in their sin will enter the kingdom of heaven The problem we have today is that many have come to know a Jesus that just simply isn't the Jesus of the Bible. But I think there's another truth to be found here in the passage, and that's a clear need for a reminder to those who do know. Paul is certainly speaking to all the Christians in Ephesus, and certainly there was a mix Of those who only professed Christ in Ephesus and yet weren't truly of Christ, and those who were faithful. And so there's a need for those of us who are truly children of God to be reminded of this truth. From time to time, we need to be told again that the gate is narrow, it's not broad. The path to destruction is broad, but the gate to salvation is narrow and few find it. And that those who live in their sin will die in their sin apart from the saving grace of Christ. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. You know, it's also interesting, and I don't know if you realize this, but every single book in the New Testament either explicitly or implicitly deals with sin. Every single New Testament book. Listen to a few passages that speak to the danger of sin. Galatians 5, 19-21 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's Paul to the Galatians. In verse 16 of that same book, Galatians, and the same chapter, Paul says, but I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There's an emphasis all through the Bible of not only knowing right doctrine, orthodoxy, but also of right living, orthopraxy. Paul, speaking to the believers in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 9.10, writes, Now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful, sorry, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world brings death. In Colossians 3, 5, and 6, we read, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, to impurity, passions, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So we have all these warnings throughout scripture. And I think perhaps the most terrifying one comes from Jesus himself. If you were to ask me what's the most frightening passage in the Bible, I'm going to tell you it's in Matthew 7. You know it, but let me read it to you. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. This is Jesus himself speaking. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy, and in your name did we not cast out demons, and in your name did we not do many miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a frightening passage, especially for those who live in their sin So the expectation this morning from Paul is that believers understand this truth very well. Not only is Paul bringing a reminder to the minds of believers, but I think we also see in this verse the reason for the previous passages. Right? So Paul has told us in verses 3 and 4 of all these vices. He's told us of immorality and impurity and filthiness and how... They should have no place among believers. And now he's giving us the reason that these should have no place in believers. And the the reason is because these things are the ways of unbelievers and unbelievers will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Those who live in these vices will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It fits perfectly in line with what Paul has been communicating with us All along, he's been giving us the difference between what? The godly and the godless. He's been speaking of the believer and telling us how to walk, and then he gives a comparison with the unbeliever and how they walk. Here, he brings us to the ultimate conclusion that all of those who live practicing these vile ways of life will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He goes on to tie his statement back to verse 3 specifically because he names the same vices in verse 5 as he did in verse 3. I'm not going to go through them again in any great detail, but I just kind of want to skim over them again because he brings them back to remembrance here. He lists immorality. If you'll recall, the word here, immoral, is a far-reaching word that's really used for any and every type of of sexual sin, both physical and spiritual. It's the opposite of exercising self-control. Impurity here is a word that really covers anything that's considered unclean or filthy, even to the rottenness of dead men's bones. It encompasses everything from impure thoughts to misguided passions to lustful ideas or any other type of sensual perversion. And then the last thing he mentions is covetousness, which is greed. For one, this is a violation specifically of the 10th commandment found in Exodus. If you'll recall, it says, "...you shall not covet your neighbor's house." You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This one really boils down to being ungrateful to God for what you have. Remember, Paul ends in verse 4 by saying that the giving of thanks is what's proper for believers. And so greed and covetous people aren't thankful. Right? The fruit of that unthankfulness is that they're willing to take from others what doesn't belong to them. This doesn't necessarily mean physically stealing, although it includes that you can be covetous in your heart. In fact, it's first a heart condition. There are dozens of ways that we can take from another in a sinful way, but the heart of a person like this is always seeking to satisfy self. They aren't concerned for the well-being of others. They're rather consumed with what they can get from others. The last thing he mentions is an idolater. Well, covetousness is merely a form of idolatry. Colossians 3.5 tells us, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. So folks, Paul's warning is just very simply this, no one who lives in sin will see heaven. No one who lives in their sin will see heaven. Holiness is essential. It's imperative. And without it, none can enter heaven. Listen to Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and by it many be defiled that there is also no sexual, immoral, or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. In the church, you have two types of people. Remember, Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to those who profess Christ. And in the church, you have two types of people, and every person in the church, in the visible church, falls into one or the other other category, and that's either the tares or the wheat. Those who just want happiness at any cost, and those who want holiness. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew Let me read it to you. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He, being Jesus, presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? And he said to him, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For a while, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. This is a reference until Christ coming back, right? And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. He's talking about people here, right? The tares are those who look like Christians, talk like Christians, but they don't live like Christians These are the ones the book of Jude warns us of. Those who say the right things on the outside, they look like the right things on the outside, but in reality, they're living unrepentantly in their sin. And we're told that in the end, they're going to be gathered up and burned. Now, I don't want you to stress about that too much. It's going to be like this until... Christ returns. I don't want us to be so focused on the tears in the church that it stresses us because there's nothing we can do about that. But you be the ones who want holiness. That's where your concern ought to be. You be the ones who want holiness, who want to stay away from the ones who just want happiness. The ones who just want to be happy are the ones who just want to gratify, gratify their own flesh. We read in, we read in Galatians 5.16 earlier, but the next verse, 17, says this, "...for the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh." For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things you want. Folks, if someone is living their life in sin, indulging in the desires of the flesh, they are living against the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is against them. Those seeking happiness instead of holiness are the ones living in impurity and immorality and greed. Those who are seeking holiness are imitating Christ. Striving to imitate Christ and His character. Striving to walk in love that seeks the greatest good of others. There are two types of people in the church and Paul says that those who imitate God are beloved children and are saints loved by Christ and those that live contrarily He tells us in our passage this morning, we'll have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The stark reality is that hell is real. And that the immoral and the impure and the greedy will spend all all eternity there. We never want to minimize The reality of hell. Hell is meant to be scary. It's meant to be frightening. It is frightening. Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second Death Isn't that terrifying? It ought to be. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Speaking to believers here. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's frightening. Did you realize that Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person in the Bible? And He speaks more about hell than He does even heaven. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells His disciples, He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Don't worry about the world. the world's going to, Persecute Christians, they've been doing it since Christ. They're going to keep doing it until Christ comes back. Forget, don't worry about that. Do not fear the ones who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus speaking. We read the parable of the tares and the wheat earlier, but later on, Jesus actually explains the parable. And He gives a description of hell. In Matthew 13, 40-43, when Jesus is explaining the parable to His disciples, He says this, He says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age." The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the comfort for the believer. But hell is a terrifying place for those who do not truly come to know Christ. Paul says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul wants to make sure that the believers in Ephesus understand, though they should already understand, that sin leads to death and that those who practice evil will not receive an inheritance in Christ. The believers in Ephesus needed this reminder, and we certainly need it today as well. I think the the worst thing a believer could ever do was to play with sin. And one of the worst things that we can do today concerning those who live a lifestyle such as Paul describes is to minimize sin to them. So you tell the homosexual, well, that's just not really a big deal. You probably were born that way. No. No. That's not what the Word of God says. It's not what Paul says. Minimizing sin isn't loving to anybody. Christ didn't do it. The apostles didn't do it. Nor shall we do it. It doesn't matter if someone claims to be a Christian. If they live a life contrary to Christ if they live a life characterized by these vices Paul has listed, then they will not see the kingdom of God. And we do no favors to them by helping them believe they will. No, no, no matter how much they promise they know Christ, no, no matter how much they claim to know Christ, these things never characterize someone who's truly born again. Folks, there is a Rising, and I'm deeply concerned about this wave of so-called gay Christians. There's no such thing. If you have to identify who you are by a sin, you do not know the love of Christ. You can't live in impurity and immorality. As Paul says clearly here, and see the kingdom of Christ and God. The Bible simply leaves no possibility at all for one to be truly saved and still live in and be given to unrepentant sin. You're either a tear or you're a wheat. And you either bear good fruit or you bear bad fruit. Now let me say this. This is not to say that Christians don't struggle with sin. You know that's not true. I know that's not true. We all struggle with sin. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about those who their life is characterized by sin. That's exactly what a so-called, quote-unquote, gay Christian is. They're characterizing their Christian life by a sin. They're not Christian. It's no different than if someone was walking around saying... I'm an adulterous Christian. I'm a drug dealing Christian. It's absurd. So we understand that genuine Christians do struggle with sin, but they're not characterized by it. Right? A sinful life isn't the sum of their being. Sort of just like a murderer might do a good deed, but that doesn't make him a good person. He's still a murderer. He just did a good deed. His life isn't characterized by the one thing he did. A Christian will sin, but their life isn't characterized by that. They, don't, they aren't given over to it. They haven't excused the sin in their life. They hate the sin, they fight against the sin, and though they may fall a hundred times, they get back up, and they confess it, and they repent, and they fight against it. But the unbeliever, the tear, if you will, loves that sin, lives in that sin, indulges in that sin, excuses that sin. That's the difference. We see this all the time today in people who... Define themselves by the sin they live in. just want to make that clear. Now Paul ends by speaking of the kingdom of Christ and God. This is of course a reference to the eternal dwelling place of the believer, right? It has to do with the community of believers and the eternal place in heaven. It necessarily relates to salvation. And it's impossible for the wicked to enter the kingdom of Christ, as Paul's telling us. Every person saved is part of this glorious kingdom. Every person saved. That includes the true church today, as well as those who will come in the future, and every person whose life demonstrates true repentance and faith in Christ will be a part of this kingdom. And every life that demonstrates otherwise will be denied the inheritance of this kingdom kingdom Titus 2 gives us a picture of those who will see the kingdom of Christ in Titus 2:11 through 15 it says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live in sensibility righteously and godly in the present age Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God, Savior. 1 John 3, 3 gives us a picture of those who will see the kingdom of Christ. He says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, No one abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And again, we're talking about the one who is characterized by sin. No one who lives as an immoral, impure, covetous, any of those vices, who gives themselves to those things, knows Christ. He goes on to tell us that the one who practices righteousness is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. Again, I want to remind us that the apostle was warning the body of believers. The reality then is this. If we are not living in such a way that demonstrates we are pursuing a life of holiness, a life that aims to please God, to flee sin, and to pursue righteousness, then it's because we don't know God. And if that is the case, then we're in danger of the very thing Paul is warning us of here. Unless we have a life that's constantly being perfected by Christ, then we are still in our sins and trespasses and we have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And if that's true, we must repent at once and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. If every person who professes Christ today took the solemn warning of Paul seriously, one of two things would happen. The first is that in reality, many would discover Paul is describing the condition in which they still live and they would discover their need for Christ for the first time, truly. The second thing that might happen would be that those who know they belong to Christ would have a renewed love and gratitude for that which Christ has saved them from. Sin and death. And they would have a renewed commitment to pursue holiness, whatever the cost. There are only two types of people in the church, and each one of us falls into one category or the other. So I hope this morning that you'll consider, as Paul most certainly desired for the Ephesian church to consider, the warning that he gave and that it would drive us to the necessary end, either repentance or a renewed zeal and passion for holiness. Let's pray.